Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. It's not a stretch to say that men of a certain age need to look after themselves, especially in ways they can actually control, such as diet and physical activity. I'm putting my hand up right now. But poor fat metabolism isn't just linked to type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Professor Matthew Watt is a prostate cancer and lipid metabolism researcher and the head of the Department of Physiology, School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. His research has found that there is a strong link between obesity, diet and poor outcomes in men who develop prostate cancer. In particular, men who consume more saturated fatty acids seem to have more aggressive cancer. Professor Matthew Watt took some time out to sit and chat about his work with our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Now, you're known for fat metabolism, but you've done a little work in the prostate cancer area. Give us a little insight into what you've revealed about prostate cells. Yes, this is some very recent work that's been conducted with our laboratory in in collaboration with uh, researchers at Monash University. And essentially what we've found is that unlike other cancer types which rely heavily on glucose to fuel both their growth and their um, proliferation, prostate cancer cells are very highly reliant on fatty acids. And this is important because what we've shown in our own research is that when we block the capacity of these prostate cells to take up fatty acids, we've been able to slow their growth dramatically. Um, We think this has very important implications in understanding both the progression of the disease, but also ways in which we might be able to therapeutically target uh, prostate cancer in the future. So these cancer cells eat fat, and you've blocked the transport molecule that takes the fat to the cells. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, that was one of the key findings from our paper. So we've known for many years that there's a certain protein that exists, and that's called CD36, and that transports fats into other tissues. And what was specifically shown in this research is that CD36 exists in prostate cancer cells. It's actually upregulated or its activity is increased. And this is very important in bringing fat into the tissue to help the prostate cancer grow. So how have you reduced the cancer growth in your trials? Is it a drug? Is it an injection? What is it? Yeah, so we've done this through uh, two different methods. So we're able to firstly genetically delete uh, CD36 or this protein from prostate cancer cells. And by doing that, we're able to show, at least in mouse models, that we can reduce prostate cancer growth by about 50%. We've also done other studies where we've used pharmacological inhibitors of CD36 to slow down the uptake of fatty acids into cells. And again, we've shown remarkable improvements uh, in slowing down cancer growth. Um, What was really important in those studies, those cells were derived from human patients who had undergone radical prostatectomy or had their prostate tissue removed and were able to get those cancer cells and use those to provide you know, really important um, clinical evidence, if you like, that this process may work. Wow. When does it go to market? Well, it's a really good question, So, and it's a tough question. So typically when we think about drug discovery, um, it usually takes... Uh, about 10 years from initial discovery into the clinic. Um, And, you know, there's a a lot of limitations um, for that process. We need to be able to convince pharmaceutical companies that it's an interesting target. And then, of course, you need to undergo uh, clinical trials, um, both phase one right through to phase three, uh, to show that your drug 
firstly works, but also is safe to use in in humans. Now, I know your main research area is fat metabolism in cells, and we're going to talk later about obesity and these types of mechanisms in the body. But what got you into this prostate cancer direction? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Andy, and I think it really relates to my age and my understanding that prostate cancer is a very important issue to men as they're growing older. You know, I'm now in my mid-40s, and I've got a lot of friends, obviously, in the same age group and a bit older, and it's becoming a big issue for all of us, and we talk about this regularly. And what was very interesting is that a number of years ago, um, another group, um, another research group moved uh, into a lab next door to mine, and they worked on prostate cancer. I worked on lipid metabolism and obesity, and I sort of said to this research group, isn't it really interesting that men that are obese are more inclined to get prostate cancer? And so from that point, um, we've conducted a whole series of studies trying to understand how prostate cancer develops at faster rates in men with obesity. And of course, our answer is at the moment that it's due to an increase in fat metabolism. Now, I believe also that men are getting prostate cancer earlier and that's related to obesity as well. Yeah, there's some evidence that there's increased rates of prostate cancer in uh, younger men, which has typically been seen as a a disease for older men in the past. And indeed, you're, you're right in saying that it's probably due to an increased incidence of obesity. But I think specifically, you need to understand that there are a number of changes that happen in the body when you are obese um, or in obese individuals, that could lead to the progression of cancer. So one of those may be changes in fat metabolism, but of course there's other changes related to endocrine function um, that may also be important. And I know that um, groups both in Melbourne and internationally uh, are studying these relationships at the moment. If I was to follow you after our studio interview into your lab, what would we find you doing? I know you work on fat metabolism and obesity. Tell us about your work there. For many years, my laboratory has really been focused on obesity-related disorders. And when we talk about that, we talk about a cluster of diseases that are very closely associated with obesity, and they include type 2 diabetes, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and cardiovascular disease. Our lab doesn't specifically work on cardiovascular disease, but rather has a very strong focus on understanding how uh, defects or changes in fat metabolism Um, can predispose people or promote prediabetes in individuals. But more recently, we've been very interested also in understanding how defective fat metabolism leads to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, the reason why this research is really important, at least in my eyes, is that about 70% of individuals with fatty liver disease have type 2 diabetes. We know that uh, fatty liver disease um, rates increase by up to 90% uh, in individuals with obesity. And we also know that the majority of people with type 2 diabetes are also obese. So this cluster of diseases tend to go hand in hand. And I guess it's our responsibility now to better understand how these diseases develop and think about smart ways in which we can prevent them from um, progressing. So you're looking at how the cell uses fat for energy, its relationship with insulin at the hormonal level, and its relationship with these diseases. Yeah, that's correct. And I mean, it's a, it's a big body of work that we, we do, and it's hard to think about that in its entirety. But if we break it down, we can think about fat when it enters the bloodstream as a bad thing if it enters at high rates. And so the reason I say this is that a natural response in your body is to release fatty acids from your adipose tissue. And we're talking about the fat that sits around your stomach and around your organs. And we need that as a fuel source normally. 
what often happens in states like obesity is that the rate of fat release is increased into the bloodstream and that fat isn't burnt at sufficient rates. And what then happens is that those fats accumulate in tissues like the muscle, the liver, the heart, the pancreas, and it's the accumulation of these fats that's linked to disease states. So there's going to be a different transport system than, say, in the prostate cancer research. You're, you're looking at the molecules that are shuffling these fatty things around, but also what triggers the shuffling of fats around the body. That's correct. So we're, we're particularly interested in understanding, firstly, how fats are released from our fat stores, and secondarily, how they're taken up into other tissues like the liver and the muscle. Now, I guess the really important thing is when a fat enters a tissue, let's say we use the liver as an example, it has a number of different fates. It can be burnt as energy or it could be stored as a number of different lipid types. And depending on where it's stored, it might dictate disease status. All right? And this is a very important question, particularly in the field of fatty liver disease, but also type 2 diabetes. And it's something we've worked on for the last 10 years or so. Oh, back to the lab for you then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you've got your work cut out for you. Sometimes in the lab, yeah. <laughs> Matt, since you've been working in the area of physiology... What's changed? What sort of changes have you seen that are, that are worth reflecting on? It's a really good question. Um, I think one of the major changes that's happened in the field of physiology particularly is uh, the use of specific tools to assess molecular biology in combination with the physiology. And what I mean by that is that about 20 or 30 years ago, it was very difficult to perform experiments where we could understand the precise molecular detail that happens within a cell. So we're, we're talking at the level of the nucleus and we're talking about you know the cellular components. Now we have the tools to be able to do our physiology experiments, so to be able to assess whole body function, but also at the same time to be able to take samples and very small samples, like you'd be thinking you know a, a piece of tissue that might be the size of uh, the end of a, an eraser on a pencil, for example. And from that, we can get a full molecular profile. So we can get all the genes in that cell um, we can get um, all the proteins in that cell, that one single sample. And so we can very easily now marry up the molecular biology or those, these intricate events in cells with our whole body responses. And I think that's been the major revolution in the field. I'm keen to explore misconceptions. Have you encountered misconceptions about your area of research or from the public when it comes to fat metabolism and obesity? I think one of the major issues we have in the, the field of understanding obesity is the, the perception from some people in the public that it's the obese person's fault that they're obese. And some people may wonder why we're actually funding research into this when it's their problem and they should eat less and exercise more would be the sort of pervasive attitude. We don't share that view. We know that there are very distinct um, changes that happen in the body, not just with obesity, but as you're developing towards obesity. And these changes happen at the level of the brain, but also in your peripheral tissues like your muscle and your liver and some of your other endocrine organs that secrete hormones that regulate both food intake, but also energy expenditure. And so what we know is that over time, is that your body becomes resistant to some normal signals that indicate that you may have eaten enough or other signals that suggest that you should be burning more energy. And they're very hard to reverse those signals. And so it's our job as researchers, for example, to understand what those signals are and how we may be able to reverse those. And of course, it's hard to relay that message to the general public because it's, they're very complex messages. And one of our biggest challenges is to be able to deliver that message in a readily understandable way so that people appreciate that. 
of course, there's the perception from others in the field that suggests that we should be um, investing more into public health research. So this would be the, the type of research that would be understanding why people have certain behaviours that may be linked to obesity and disease development. And of course, the government have invested a lot of money into that field for many years, and I think that's still a wise investment. But I think from my perspective is there needs to be greater funding into areas of basic science so we have a greater appreciation of the basic biological processes that lead to obesity and its comorbidities, which include diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but also to encourage this early work which can lead to therapeutic development, which is a very difficult field to enter. There's a lot of confusion out there about what to eat, whether we go down the ketogenic, high-fat, medium-protein, almost no-carbohydrate or the low-carbohydrate diet or the uh, eat clean and green vegan-ish. There's so much confusion. Andy, you're setting me up for failure here. This is a very hard question to answer. So first, a lot of the confusion is born about uh, the mixed messaging from researchers and how we promote our findings. Um, That's for sure. The second one is that there's obviously key bodies that are very interested in promoting different diets. That's also important. My commentary around this would relate to our understanding that uh, one diet won't be effective in all people and that some individuals will respond better to um, a high-carbohydrate diet, low-fat diet. Other individuals will respond better to a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. Um, And of course, there's also different composition of different fatty acids which people are interested in. Now, what I think people need to understand is that there is a, a genetic basis to these responses and depending on what your genetic makeup is may dictate how you respond well or not to a certain diet. So this one-size-fits-all type thought process really isn't an accurate reflection of how we should be thinking about diets. And I think some really simple advice would be that, you know, if we're eating foods that are as close to the source as possible, that would be a great start. And the other advice would be if you're thinking you're eating too much, you probably are, and try to pull back just a little bit on your food intake, which can often be quite difficult. I've got to pull back on the sausage rolls. Sausage rolls for breakfast, yeah. yeah. I know, Probably I've not got a good to pull option. back on that. Matt, I want to explore the curious scientist here. What got you into this area? What captured your imagination about fat cells, about hormones, about the body, obesity? Sure. I think what you're after here is some sort of eureka moment, but it wasn't that simple. So by way of background, um, my training was in exercise physiology, so understanding how we can exercise better as individuals. And a lot of my work had direct application to sort of endurance-based athletes, etc. And I guess the one moment that caused a shift in my career was when I was flying across the United States for a conference and I was sitting next to a lady who would have been in her probably mid to late 60s. And we were just discussing science in general and she told me about her diabetes. And at the time, I wasn't working in the field at all and I wasn't aware of the complications, etc., that are associated with type 2 diabetes. And um, it was at that moment I really reflected on the importance of my work and, you know, really do I want to spend the rest of my life researching, you know, high-end exercise performance which may impact, you know, 0.001 of the population or be doing some work that really goes to understanding a really important disease state. And so I went down that angle and I certainly don't regret it. What's one of the things that surprised you most about your journey in research in fat metabolism so far? So one of the things that surprises me most about the field is we keep learning. Much of the, the textbook material regarding fat metab- metabolism was written, you know, 50, 100 years ago. Um, and we're still coming up with these eureka moments. An example of that might be that our understanding of how fat cells break down fat. The detail of that was discovered probably about 40, 50 years ago. And the 
intricate detail that was discovered about 30 years ago. And we thought we had that all under control and we knew everything. In 2006, three groups independently published a brand new finding showing that there was another unidentified or previously unidentified protein that controlled fat breakdown in your adipose cells. And this was a eureka moment for the, for the whole field. And since that time, there's been many groups that have been trying to understand how this protein works and also how to therapeutically target that protein to activate it to increase fat breakdown in people. And I think that's just a really great example that, you know, after 50 to 100 years of understanding a process, that we now have new insights into that and um, uh, new ways in which we may be able to uh, treat diseases that are associated with defective fat breakdown. If we were able to time travel into the future, what would you like to see have happened? I mean, we've touched on a lot of uh, topics here today, and I think if we talk about uh, fatty liver disease, that would be a really important one. And we know at the moment that there are no cures for fatty liver disease. In fact, no therapeutic has been approved on the market. And this is completely perplexing, and this is a really serious disease because it leads to um, more serious liver disease, which results in your death. And what I would hope to see uh, in the future, and I'm hoping in even the next five to ten years, that there's uh, new strategies that we develop to be able to treat fatty liver disease, which is a disease that um, impacts you know, you know, 20 to 40% of the population. So it's a huge problem, and that's what I'm really hoping for. In your lab, with your lab associates, do you have like a hit list of molecules, you kind of like wanted posters on the wall going... Is it this one or is it this one that is making life hard for those who are obese? Have you been in my office recently? Oh, is that what they were? <laughs> so we do. Um, so we a lot of our work is really around uh, discovery, um, looking at uh, new molecules or new proteins that may be important in the pathogenesis or the development of certain diseases. Um, specifically, we've been looking at recently understanding how the liver, for example, releases subsets of proteins into the bloodstream in disease states. And we now have a list of about 300 different proteins, which we need to try to understand their potential involvement in disease pathogenesis. And so that's a real challenge in trying to understand which protein do we prioritize. What are the criteria for prioritising a certain protein that we then go on and potentially do 10 to 15 years of work on understanding how it works? So it's, um, it's, a, it's a list that we're working through and um, it's a list that we're hoping to get to the bottom of one day. Good luck. I hope you find the culprits, even if it's, it's probably a few of them, isn't it? It's probably not just one. Yeah, I think it's my suspicion there's quite a few different proteins that are involved in the etiology of the diseases we're talking about. But I think it's also about being smart and understanding which ones do we select. And I think one of the challenges we face is convincing um, people with money, so the pharmaceutical industry, in investing into our discoveries. And so if you think about this as a basic scientist, the way the process works is that we make these discoveries often with the help of public funded money, so money from um, research grants from the government. And so we're essentially working for you as an example. And what happens is once we make that initial discovery is we need to transition that into a therapeutic. And the issue we have there is that costs a lot of money. And so, for example, to do a, a clinical trial in diabetes, it might be in, a, you know, in the order of $300 million. And clearly, we don't have that budget. And if you even think about the National Health and Medical Research Council this year, their ideas grant budget, this is for the whole country, was only $250 million. 
So you can see where we're coming from when we see we need money. And so one of our jobs is to convince pharmaceutical industry that our targets are good, they're worthwhile investing in, and, and I think that's one of the big gaps we're trying to bridge at the moment. Matt, you've got a lot of students in the lab. Uh, your lab is full of PhD students. There's activity all around every lab corner. What advice do you give your students? So sometimes I might be accused of giving too much advice, um, but I think one of the, the best messages that I can give to my students and others is to think about the process and enjoy the journey. I think um, sometimes people focus too much on the outcomes, and so for scientists, an outcome is a, a publication in a high-impact journal or you know getting your next grant. And I think sometimes we just need to step back and enjoy the discovery process, enjoy that eureka moment when you discover something new in the lab and try to understand what it means and and pursue that line of inquiry. And so that would be my probably biggest advice. Okay, Matt, next time I shove a greasy French fry into my gob, what should I be thinking about? As an obesity researcher, I'd be saying, think about the motivation that led you to want to have that greasy French fry and whether you really needed it. And then think about all the research that goes into understanding why that might be the case and thinking about how we might be thinking of ways in which we can stop that from happening in the future. Is it my hormones talking? Is it my cells talking? Or is it my brain talking? They're all talking to each other, in fact. And I think that's a really key point in understanding that there is a very complex interaction between all these systems that happen. And I think one of the beauties of being a physiologist which I am, is that we have an appreciation that there is this network talking to each other that dictate our behavioural responses. Good luck in identifying amongst those 300 suspects that may actually hold the key to a better future of human health. Professor Matt Watt, thank you. And thank you, Annie, very much. Thank you to Professor Matt Watt, Head of the Department of Physiology, School of Biomedical Sciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on May 6, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.